electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 142 of the coronavirus crisis. Questions tonight about Moderna's vaccine send stocks lower, but there are new signs tonight the country is getting back to business. Volatile session for stocks today. Stocks lose ground. It's just too early to, to assess how well it is working. This, as yesterday's star, becomes today's GOAT. Shares of Moderna tanking. Why is it that the federal government should be the source of this money? Plus, is America turning against our cities? As more companies allow working from home, what's the downside? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday night after a late day sell off. Let's get you your first look at futures tonight. It was a sudden sell off late in the day. Right now, though, we are green across the board quite early, as you know. Stock closing at their lows following a report by our partners at Stat News raising questions about trial results from Moderna's vaccine candidate. The Dow and S&P 500 both falling more than one percent. The headline from Stat News that shook the markets today Vaccine experts say Moderna didn't produce data critical to assessing COVID-19 vaccine. For more on that report from Stat News that did move the stock market, we are joined once again tonight by Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is a CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you again. What is your reaction to this news and this late-day report from Stat? Well, look, I think the report raised the reasonable questions, but I think the news is what it was, which is the data from Moderna is encouraging. There's now data from multiple different vaccine development programs, both preclinical and some clinical data, suggesting that it's possible to develop vaccine constructs that produce immunogenicity, meaning produce antibodies that could potentially be neutralizing against the virus and could afford some level of protection. But the data is very early. Um, we don't know what the tighter levels were for this vaccine, for the antibodies that were produced. So we don't know the magnitude of the antibody production. We don't know whether or not all the antibodies were neutralizing. So that means whether or not they would actually target the virus and eliminate the virus. So there's a lot we don't know. But the data was encouraging. But it was early data. Uh, and there's still a lot of work to be done, including finding the right dose of that vaccine that could be taken into later stage trials. And so, you know, I think the stat article raised all the reasonable questions that was still out there yesterday as well. Um, but I think the totality of the data that we have around different vaccine constructs should give us increasing confidence that at some point in the future, um, and perhaps in the near future going into the fall, we should be able to develop experimental vaccines that will deliver some level of immunity against this virus. Some are asking the question tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, whether this data should have been released at all by Moderna. Now, how would you answer that? 
Well, look, I'm not sure why they released the data set the way they did. And I suspect they felt compelled to release it after there was some discussion of the data on Friday or perhaps of this data. There was some discussion about data from an early trial on Friday at a press conference that was held. And if that was referencing the Moderna data, they may have felt compelled to release this on Monday morning. But perhaps if they um, you know, had the opportunity to, they would have waited a little longer until they had data on all of the 45 patients on whether or not they were producing neutralizing antibodies, as well as quantitative data on the level of the antibody production. So they qualified the data um, to describe the level of the antibody production that they saw in the trial, but they didn't quantify it. And you would have wanted to see the quantity of the antibodies that were being produced, really to have an accurate picture of just how robust the immune response was to this virus. I suspect that they didn't have a complete data set um, they said at the time that they disclosed this, they only had um, data on the neutralizing antibodies on the first eight patients. So they only had data on whether or not the antibodies were actually targeting and eliminating the virus on eight of the 45 patients. For the other patients, we know that they developed what we call binding antibodies, antibodies that bound the virus, but we don't know if they eliminate the virus. Shows you how hopeful uh, everybody is, obviously, to try and get a vaccine. Dr. Gottlieb, do me a favor. You stay with me, uh, if you would. There is more to come in a few moments, including your questions tonight. And while things are still ground to a halt here in New York City, as evidenced by this shot of an empty JFK airport today, there are some signs of economic activity springing up around the country. We have a pair of stories on that tonight. Julia Borston looking at the reopening of part of Disney World in Florida and our Phil LeBeau on a bright spot from the airlines. We're going to start with you, Phil. Scott, we heard from Southwest, United, Delta, really all the airlines today at an investor conference. But what started the optimism about the airline industry and a glimmer of hope that things are improving is Southwest Airlines saying that it is seeing an uptick in bookings. In fact, bookings for the month of May are now outpacing cancellations. And when you look at what Southwest is going through, they're a long ways from coming back. They're still burning through $25 million a day. But passenger loads are gradually improving. I know when you look at the chart, people say, what, we're still down 90%. Where's the improvement? It was down 96% a month ago. Gradual, gradual improvement. But that's why when you look at the airlines, there's both optimism as well as a reality check. Let's talk about Delta Airlines. Optimism, gradual increase in leisure bookings is what they reported today. The reality check, their Q2 schedule will be down 85%. United Airlines, Where's the optimism? Today it said it is seeing moderate improvement in demand. The reality check, April bookings were down 95%. So again, not phenomenal great news, but encouraging news. Speaking of United Airlines, you do not want to miss this exclusive interview tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. We will be talking with incoming CEO Scott Kirby. Tomorrow morning, he is the man in charge of the airline. We will talk to him about the state of business for United, for the airline industry. And then later in the morning on Squawk on the Street at 1015, don't miss another CNBC exclusive. This one with John Pluger, CEO of the Air Lease Corp., one of the largest aircraft leasing companies in the world. Scott, it will be interesting to see what both men have to say about where the industry is right now and whether or not we can build off of these little signs of improvement. Big and timely interviews. Phil, we appreciate it. We'll look forward to both of those tomorrow. That's our Phil LeBeau. Now let's go to Julia Borston on that story about Disney World getting ready to open at least partially. Julia? Well, Scott, Disney is taking the very first step to open part of its U.S. Parks Division with Disney Springs as the outdoor 
retail and restaurant complex as part of Disney World in Orlando. Tomorrow's the first phase with more restaurants and shops set to open next week. Now, safety measures include limiting the number of people who can park and enter the area, temperature screenings, mandated face coverings for guests age three and up, and distance lines, plus additional hand-washing stations and hand sanitizers. Disney warning consumers, quote, by visiting Disney Springs, you voluntarily assume all risks related to exposure to COVID-19. Now, investors are closely watching whether people are eager to return to Disney's parks and whether they're having fun and spending money despite the masks and restrictions. Now, this all comes after Disney opened its Shanghai Park on May 11th, starting with a maximum of 24,000 visitors a day. That's about 30 percent of its 80,000 person daily capacity, with plans to grow those numbers by 5,000 people a week. Now, Disneyland Shanghai opened its outdoor mall about two months before that park ended up opening, but it's unclear what timeline Disney World will take. The media giant tells us that, of course, a lot will depend on both state and local officials. Um, But Scott will have to, of course, see what kind of demand there is from consumers as well. Absolutely. Julia, thank you. That's Julia Borston reporting. Now let's speak to a business owner down in the state of Georgia, the first state to reopen. Tim Catalfo owns Bantam Pub, a restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia. Tim, it's good to have you with me tonight. Thanks for being on our show. Good evening, Scott. Thank Can you, you. Tell me what the latest is down there, the status uh, of your business. Uh, the weather has been beautiful. We had uh, super great. Uh, we had super great weather during the pandemic, and luckily, it's continued with us. We opened on the 27th of April, a Monday, um, to a pretty good level of business um, for the conditions, and we have been holding it about 35 to 40 percent. And it's uh, this week we're actually operating at about uh, last week and this week we're at 50 percent. Only 60% uh, of our hours open. Uh, we've had 28 staff members, and we are down to seven staff members, five from the previous crew, and two new staff members that we brought on, and so we are looking to expand. Interesting. So you actually had some staff members um, from the uh, old regime, if you will, not come back. Correct. Uh, it is a, it's kind of a tough scenario. Um, you know, obviously, it's all over the news. 68% of the folks getting the unemployment are receiving more money than they would if they were at work. And um, there's still the fear that the uh, pandemic isn't over yet. And, you know, we're hearing it all day, every day. So I think a lot of the people are taking precaution and um, waiting to see um, if the numbers rise. It's still only a few weeks old. But I do believe we'll get um, a few of our folks back. And um, from what I'm hearing on the street, there's about 25 to 30 percent of the local businesses will or have shut and remain shuttered. So um, we'll be really looking forward to getting some folks back and, and kind of a more robust business. Our neighborhood is uh, in the old fourth ward, and uh, we've been um, kind, they've been kind enough to really support us. Our Cisco representative, Sarah Thurston, has helped us revise our entire menu, giving us a heads up on what foods will be available and which ones will be affected through processing and manufacturing and, and, and you know, um, ability for their factories to remain open and supply food. Interesting. T- take, so, a, take, it, take us inside. We've got a ticket. I'm sorry. Take us inside the restaurant. What, what does it look like? Uh, staffers wearing masks, customers wearing masks, gloves. Put us on the ground the staff, in the restaurant. The, what, uh, the staff are, are wearing masks, gloves, and we've got disinfectant everywhere. We're using a little bit more bleach and disinfectant than uh, under previous conditions to the pandemic. Uh, the guests almost never wear a mask in. Uh, we're a very small place. Bantam means smallest of class. So, uh, you know, we're 61 in the main room. But it's a very small room. We've dropped to 10 when we initially had to. We've been permitted to go up to 20 in that room. We've got a quarter-acre property, so I've got a couple buildings spread out and a bar up on the 
on the lawn area. So we've been able to have as many as 70 to 80 people uh, at the 10 maximum per table and spread out over the property. So we're actually quickly gaining back a lot of our business and I'm very optimistic. Oh, good for you. Were there ever any thoughts that you had that you would never be able to open again? I'm opening a sports bar called Big Game directly across the street, a non-competing business from other business. One is a gastro pub, and the Big Game is a sports bar. And while watching television to see that um, I'd gone to uh, watch uh, our MLS team, Atlanta United, play on Saturday with almost 70,000 fans, and by Monday they had canceled uh, the NCAA basketball tournament and then the NBA, and it was, uh, was kind of grim at that point. And then they just canceled bars and restaurants. So there was a point where I was very stressed. Well, um, I think we're going to get past that. And, it, it, and all the indicators look good. Not being a doctor uh, on that level, you know, I don't have any further answers. But I, I, I do feel like it is going to come back in a robust manner. Well, we're, we're glad to hear that. Good to hear you've got some customers coming back. We wish you well. Thank you so much, Scott. All right. That's Tim Catalfo joining us. I'll bring back in Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, sounds like a pretty decent success story. Uh, so far down in Georgia, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, how are you thinking tonight about these reopenings that we've seen? You know, so far so good. And I think it's important that individuals continue to uh, practice good hygiene, wear masks, engage in social distancing. I think people taking those simple measures on an aggregated scale across the entire population is going to go a long way towards preventing more outbreaks and resurgence in cases. We're continuing to see the number of hospitalizations and the number of cases go down nationally. Um, testing's going up quite a bit. The positivity rate, the number of tests that are coming back positive is continuing to go down. So the national trends look encouraging. Even when you back out the New York tri-state region, which was the bulk of the cases at one point, the national trends continue to look good. Now, there's selected states where we see some cases bumping up. Texas, North Carolina, for instance. We saw hospitalizations bump up a little bit in Florida and Georgia last week. We have to watch that closely. But there's no discernible trend that there is something um, negatively trending where you're seeing an upsurge in cases in any of these states. And it's things to watch closely. But remember, we also expected cases to go up slightly as we reopened the economy and as people started to engage more. So that's going to happen. That's why we wanted to do this in a staged fashion. And the final point I'll make is that I do believe there's a seasonal effect here. We don't know how much that's going to uh, come into play, how robust that's going to be. But coronaviruses don't typically circulate in the summer. And so as we reopen into the warm summer months and move more activities outside, we're going to catch a break. And that's going to be a backstop against some spread that might have happened otherwise. There are some who think it may not spread very much longer at all. A former WHO director, I'm not sure if you've seen this comment or not, said there's a, quote, real chance the virus could, quote, burn out before we get a vaccine, that more people are immune than we think. I'm curious your thoughts before I get to our Twitter questions. I think it's unlikely that we have a level of immunity across the United States that gives us anything approaching herd immunity. When we do the seroprevalence studies, I would expect it to be about 5 percent nationally, but a lot higher in hotspots like New York City. I would expect it could be as high as 30 percent. Cities like Detroit and Los Angeles and Boston could be 10 percent. So there are cities that have exposure, but not enough really to reduce the chains of transmission outside of perhaps New York City, where exposure is much, much higher. I think we will see it um, burn out to a degree in July and August. I think we're going to see transmission break off in the depth of the summer, just as we've seen with other respiratory pathogens, even the pandemic um, flu strain in 2009, H1N1. 
But we're still at risk in the fall. And I think we need to be very careful heading into the fall, coming off the summer. Hopefully we'll have a quiescent uh, summer where we can get back to normal activity and, and relax a little bit again. But we're going to need to be very careful in the fall that we could have continued outbreaks of this. And so that's the risk we're facing after the summer. But hopefully this will be a successful summer and a successful reopening. Our viewers were very excited at the opportunity, Dr. Gottlieb, to ask you questions tonight. I've got a few for you. I'm going to start with Jim Carroll, who said, what is the history, Dr. Gottlieb, of vaccine development for coronaviruses like SARS and MERS? Is it different this time? Best I know, we've never developed a vaccine for a coronavirus, have we? We haven't. Um, We haven't necessarily tried. There were vaccines in development against MERS um, that looked good in preclinical work, but we've never successfully developed a vaccine uh, clinically for any coronavirus. Um, That doesn't mean we're not going to be able to do it. And in fact, as I said, I think that there is good preclinical and now clinical evidence that you can develop uh, an immune reaction with a vaccine construct. We've developed drugs that looked successful against coronavirus in the past, particularly an antibody-based drug by Regeneron that they successfully developed and tested in large animals. They never tested it in humans, but it looked successful in animal models. I have a question from Atal Raviv, who looks like he may be a medical doctor. says, Dr. Gottlieb, if you were in charge of a federal strategy to open schools in the fall, what testing strategy would you recommend? Point of care? Uh, antigen testing daily, nasal swab weekly, uh, no testing, just masks and smaller classes. What would you say? I think schools are going to look to de-densify the classroom. They're going to look to keep um, students in smaller groups and not have them intermingle as much to reduce um, social spreading within the school. I think there is going to be testing put into some of the schools. I know some states are looking at that. There's recommendations going forth to governors to implement testing regimens is probably going to be something that's more of a um, random sampling and testing regimen rather than testing everyone once a week or, you know, testing people daily. Certainly that's going to be, I think, pretty intrusive and also pretty expensive to do. But I think you could see some random sampling, some random testing to try to reduce the risk that you could have large outbreaks in a school that are going undetected. Remember what you're trying to guard against, because we know a lot of the spread among kids insofar as there is spread, is probably asymptomatic spread. What you're trying to guard against is an outbreak in the school that, you, that might go undetected. And so if you do some random sampling in the school, you can probably protect against that. Finally tonight, a question from uh, Doug Thomas. There's so much unknown, as, as you know, Dr. Gottlieb, about this virus. He asks, can the virus spread through sweat glands? Interesting question. What's your answer? As best I know, the answer is no. Um, This is a respiratory pathogen. It's primarily spread through respiratory droplets. All right. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it as always. And uh, I know our viewers appreciate the interaction with them as well. We'll see you soon. All right. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us tonight once again. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Next tonight, what working from home will do to America's corporate culture if it sticks. And judging by many companies, it will. And if more people are working from home in states far from HQ, what's it going to mean for this country's big cities? Plus, the next shoe is about to drop right on the real estate industry. Before the break, what this country looks like from sea to shining sea on the 142nd day of this crisis.
Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back on day 142 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines tonight on the virus. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin warning members of the Senate Banking Committee there is risk of permanent damage to the economy if states' shutdowns go on too long. Walmart and Home Depot reporting a surge in same-store sales as consumers stocked up and stayed home during the outbreak. And the Belmont Stakes will be run on June 20th without spectators and at a shorter distance. Well, this evening, Visa says it expects to allow employees to work from home through the rest of the year. This comes after several other big tech companies made similar announcements. Tonight, Kate Rooney reporting on what that could mean for the city of San Francisco, a city dependent on the tech workforce. Kate, good evening. Hi, Scott. Market Street, where Twitter and Square are headquartered, could look a lot different after this pandemic passes. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, saying this week that both companies will be allowed to work from home permanently. Dorsey explaining part of his rationale at the J.P. Morgan Tech Conference last week. With a more distributed model, we, we can get talent anywhere. There's a lot of folks out there that just do not want to move to San Francisco. They don't want to work in a big headquarters. They feel very comfortable working in a much smaller office or even at home. And, uh, and, and they would say no in the past um, because they built a lifestyle and they, they didn't want to change it. Dorsey so far is the only major tech CEO to announce a permanent work from home setup. Google and Facebook, meanwhile, saying they were going remote until the end of this year. The announcement has people in San Francisco buzzing about potential for other C- Silicon Valley CEOs to follow Dorsey's lead and the implications for the Bay Area. The tech industry employs more than 400,000 people around San Francisco, according to one report. Square and Twitter combined have nearly 10,000 employees. Permanent work from home could mean pain as well for commercial real estate and, of course, for housing prices. Many San Francisco residential leases are month to month, making it easier for people to pick up and leave for potentially a more affordable lifestyle. Scott? Kate, we appreciate it. Kate Rooney reporting for us tonight. So what will cities look like if employees don't work in the same place they live? Ed Glazer is a professor of economics at Harvard University. He specializes in urban and public economics. Professor, it's good to have you with us tonight. Thank you. Picking up off what Kate was talking about, are our cities ever going to be the same again? I think it depends a lot on the path of the disease. 
if this is a one-time event, uh, if this is something that does not repeat every five years, then I think cities will basically get back to normal with some severe short-term interruptions. If pandemic remains a more permanent part of urban life, then no, our cities will not be the same. Um, we just did a poll of National Association of Business Economists, who are our professional economists who work in, in companies, and more than 30% of them said that more than 40% of the employees who are now working from home and didn't work from home beforehand would stay working from home. So this view that there will be a permanent shift of some workers uh, to working remotely has got to be right. But cities will adjust to that. There'll be a drop in commercial real estate prices, perhaps. There'll be a shuffling of who lives where. But as long as cities become safe, they are extraordinarily resilient. Wondering what the implication is, though, long term for cities, tax revenues and things like that. If people don't return to the big office buildings downtown, cities are already suffering, aren't they? They are. There have been fault lines in cities long before COVID-19 appeared. Uh, there's an opportunity gap, meaning that upward mobility has tended to be lower for kids growing up in cities. Many cities have, have mortgaged their future with uh, very large public pension uh, liabilities. And all of those problems remain, and in some sense, they're just exacerbated by COVID-19. But the basic story of the last 40 years is that highly educated cities have done remarkably well. They've done remarkably well because of collaborative creativity, because of success in finance, and because they're just more fun places to live. And so if the health problems can be handled, if this is a one-off event, then I think fundamentally we will be looking forward to an optimistic future and hopefully one in which cities will do a more responsible job of planning their finances going forward. It's going to be harder to incentivize people to live in cities knowing that public transportation, for example, may be the only option in getting to an office. If you take that comfort level away, there's a longer lasting impact. You're right. And making public transit safe again is certainly one of the big challenges. But it's easy to figure out where that incentive comes from, as you put it. The incentive comes from lower housing costs. So you've got a lot of space to go in the current price of San Francisco real estate or the current price of New York City real estate before you start leaving uh, townhouses in Greenwich Village vacant. And so what happens in the short run is the prices drop and the cities become at least temporarily more affordable. Now, that may be bad news for some, you know, uh, some property owners, but I don't think the idea of New York becoming a bit more affordable is such a terrible outcome. And that's the incentive that people will get, that all of a sudden they may be able to afford an urban apartment when they couldn't before. And then they'll figure out a way to make make the, the grittier city more possible for them. There, there were fears, certainly after after 9-11 and other events, that people wouldn't want to live in New York a anymore either. And that certainly has not been the case. We can only hope that uh, that won't be the case again, that our cities will remain as vibrant as ever on the other side of COVID-19. That's certainly true. But in some sense, pandemic is uh, a more, you know, more of a body blow for cities. Because whereas the attack on the towers was absolutely horrific, right, it didn't, in, in essence, take away the whole joy and pleasure of human interaction. It didn't make every time you connect with another human being a, a potential threat to your life. And so, you know, plagues and history, plagues and cities have a long history, going back to the plague of Athens that slew Pericles in 430 BC, or the, the plague of Justinian that's, that broke Constantinople's attempt to reimpose the Pax Romana on the Mediterranean world. And so plague can be a really terrible outcome for, for cities. Well, now you're flexing but your historical muscles there. they can also be handled. And 
<laughs> Professor, we have to go. I appreciate your time tonight. It's nice speaking with you. You be well. We'll see you again soon. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. That's Ed Glazer, Harvard University. Here's what's next tonight. A real estate agent doing big deals in sunny Southern California says the industry is about to get hit with something big. And it's going to be a big surprise to anyone putting their house on the market. Plus, the crisis through the eyes of a child. This CNBC special report is coming right back. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We may not be the cheapest place to do business, but we're the best place to do business. And it shouldn't surprise you or anyone watching uh, that that innovation and research and development and that entrepreneurial spirit is still alive and well, despite this pandemic here in the state of California. I'm also not worried about uh, Elon leaving anytime soon. I've had a lot of conversations with him, and we're committed to the success of the innovation and the low-carbon green growth economy that he's been promoting for decades, and the state of California is accelerating in. That was California Governor Gavin Newsom a little bit earlier on Fast Money tonight. Chief executives from across the spectrum talking about their own paths forward on this network today. Here are the highlights from the top. If these states stay shut too long, it could be irreversible damage. I mean, these small businesses will never open. And that will be a shame because the only guy left on Main Street was a small restaurant guy. Everyone else has gone online. So I don't think the Main Streets of America look ever, ever look the same. If the... NBA comes back, Major League Baseball starts, uh, MLS soccer. I think you're going to see all those sports come back, but empty stadiums. Uh, also, probably testing the players. Uh, probably have to do that almost every day, and uh, especially before games. Believe it or not, opening up at 25%, and now we're going to 50% in Texas uh, this Friday, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on business. Uh, my, my operators are telling me that we're really not turning away the business at this point. It's just the business isn't there. It is manageable. You can create a safe work environment. You can protect the employees, and it can be safe. But it isn't the same as before the virus. We've got to take precautions. With stocks ending in the red today, let's give you another check on where futures stand this evening. After a late-day sell-off, you can see we are in the green across the board for the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq. It comes after an afternoon sell-off, as I said, following a report from our partners at Stat News raising questions about Moderna's vaccine trial results. Those same results that sent stocks surging yesterday resulted in a loss today of nearly 400 points for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Boeing, Procter Gamble... Chevron and Exxon all fall, falling today more than 3 percent. 
Well, there have been a record-breaking number of delistings in the real estate market since the coronavirus outbreak. Aaron Kerman is president of the Aaron Kerman Group. He specializes in Los Angeles area real estate, also happens to be the star of CNBC's listing Impossible. Aaron, it's good to talk to you tonight. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So people are pulling a lot of houses off the market. They really are. We've seen a 148% increase in delistings uh, since this whole pandemic started, which is an astronomical number. Uh, 7% from March to April and 6% from April to May. Uh, And that's not including the properties that were supposed to get listed that didn't get listed. So we're going to be seeing a whole lot of inventory. And this is simply because people don't don't want other people in their houses looking at properties. Is that the, the, the primary reason? I think a lot of people are concerned with their safety. Uh, you know, a lot of the states have shelter in places, you know, California. We weren't even legally allowed to show houses until last week. So there's multiple reasons. But, you know, the implications of having this type of, of property surge could be massive. Because I think what we're going to see is once these cities are open wherever you are and once buyers are back out, there's going to be a lot of inventory. And we're really not quite sure what the buyer appetite is going to be. Sounds like it might be a buyer's market, though. If there's going to be a ton of inventory, will that drive prices lower? If I was a betting man, I would say we haven't even begun to see the implications of nearly 20 percent unemployment, small businesses shut down. Uh, and, yeah, I think it's absolutely going to be a buyer's market. And I think, um, you know, once the cities get open, uh, there's going to be a surge of inventory. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how many buyers are actually ready to, uh, to, to buy property. Uh, from what we're seeing today, the sellers that are willing to transact and the sellers that are willing to do great price reductions are the ones that were actually able to sell their house in today's market. And our advice to sellers is not to wait because we don't know where we're going to go. So we think the time is now, and I'd rather run on our old numbers rather than the numbers that will be in the future. You know, it's interesting. We're just coming off a segment where we're talking about the future of our cities, and I'm wondering how you're thinking about that um, in terms of people leaving urban areas for more suburban areas. Now, L.A. is obviously a little bit of a different urban versus suburban area than some other major cities, but how are you thinking about that question? I think L.A. is going to fare better than most cities. I think uh, a lot of cities that have verticality are going to be challenging. Uh, we've had a lot of buyers from, from New York, London, and Hong Kong that said, look, I would rather be in Los Angeles because we have more space, we have more yard. And so I think that that will be one of the saving graces for Los Angeles. But in general, I think people are really redefining the way that they want to live, where they want to be, and how they want to spend and I don't think our markets will ever look the same. I, I think that um, process, procedure, buyer attitude, seller attitude is going to be forever changed. I'm sold on the pool and the palm tree behind you, so uh, I'm, I'm hooked already. It's good well, to if talk you, to if you. you want to buy, if you want to buy something, you know how to find me. <laughs> be well. We'll check in with you again soon. Aaron Kerman. Th- thanks so much. All right. It's good having you uh, tonight. You can catch the entire season, by the way. Season one of Listing Impossible on Memorial Day from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. And watch anytime, of course, on CNBC.com. Here's what else is coming up tonight. The imprint of a crisis on a child. From the turmoil of the 1960s to the economic downturn of the 70s, there were children of the financial crisis. Now there will be children of the coronavirus. What this will mean to their generation as they grow, next. First, what the world looks like on the 142nd day of the pandemic. 
good to have you back with us. Just like in crises past, this pandemic will likely have a lasting effect on the American psyche. Dr. Cindy Liu is an assistant professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Doctor, it's nice to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. How is this crisis going to impact us and our psyche over the long term, do you think? Yeah, this is something that we're trying to study through our um, COVID-19 adult resilience experiences study that's taking place at the Brigham Women's Hospital and also um, Boston University. And we're trying to follow 18 to 30 year olds to understand exactly what is going to transpire over the next year and how they think it will impact their well-being overall. Um, a lot of the things that they have had um, have been lost. Um, young adults um, experience a lot of milestones, whether it's graduating from high school, college, looking for a new job, thinking about um, you know, settling down and having a family. And so many of those expectations have had to be thrown out. And so um, what we were seeing is that um, there's a lot of grief and loss over what's transpired. How then should we talk to our children about the last few months and, and all the things that, that they've missed and the socializing that they haven't been able to have? I'm thinking about the great impact on our children from the lack of being around their friends over such a long period of time. Absolutely. It's... it's um... It's really challenging and it's normal to react and to grieve over that. Um, it's certainly a major, major loss. And so all the grief reactions that, we're, that um, we might know of when we lose somebody special, when there's something tragic that happens, um, individuals are experiencing that right now. And so it's completely normal. They may feel depressed. Um, they may feel like they don't want to do anything. Um, and then at the same time, what's interesting about the pandemic and what people have, dis um, have experienced is that there's a lot of time on their hands, um, at least for many people um, in the U.S., maybe not so much the essential workers, but there are a lot of people who have time on their hands. And, and that's a period in which you can actually discover a little bit about yourself. We basically pressed the pause button and people had to think about who they are and um, what this has, has done for them and, and have had to really learn more about themselves. How worried are you about a longer lasting mental health crisis emerging out of this pandemic? I'm, I'm worried. Um, I think that there's no doubt that um, mental health is going to be a major issue. It's been a major issue for young adults even before the pandemic, and this will exacerbate a lot of the conditions and a lot of the existing issues that we've seen. I think, though, that we need to recognize that with adversity comes um, an ability or this recognition that we can actually potentially learn something about ourselves and um, maybe find areas of um, ways in which we can cope and thrive. Um, I think of individuals who have been chronically anxious. And with this pandemic, many people have said, you know, it, it, I was really stressed out about it. But one thing that I've learned is that other people have started to experience the same anxiety that I've had. And in some ways, that's validating. Um, other people have recognized that the loss of certain things that they might not might have taken for granted, um, that it's really important to them. For instance, we had a survey respondent who said that they miss walking from their car to their office in the parking lot. And so these little things, you just don't recognize that they were valuable until um, this pandemic. And so I think that focusing on this has allowed people to learn a, a bit more about themselves. And I think by doing that, they can really think about how to actually move forward. I'm also thinking about children who haven't been able to visit grandparents uh, because, you know, obviously a higher risk group is the elderly, not able to go to nursing homes, and in some respects, yeah. families not being able to grieve because of the virus itself. 
Absolutely. And this is something we've seen quite a bit, which is that our survey respondents are very, very worried about their family members. And they've been apart for a number of them. They're in college, um, they're in graduate school, they're working somewhere else in the country. But even then, just living outside of the home, that's challenging because they're not able to celebrate Mother's Day. They're not able to celebrate these holidays and things that they normally would with their families. And, you know, I think these are things that we look forward to. And that's what makes life life. Um, and so uh, they've had, people have had to adapt to find ways to bring meaning to their lives. Dr. Liu, we so much appreciate you being with us tonight. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. All right. That's Dr. Cindy Liu joining us tonight. Up next, speaking of children, helping kids who need it the most. Plus, we're recognizing America's restaurants as we do each night operating through this crisis. Welcome back. Thursday is Red Nose Day, raising money for children in need. NBC has dedicated its primetime slate to the cause starting at 8 o'clock on Thursday evening. Allison Moore is CEO of Comic Relief U.S. It's the nonprofit organization behind Red Nose Day. Access Hollywood host and Red Nose Day supporter Mario Lopez is also with us tonight. It's so good to see you both. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for thank having you for me. Having me. Mario, Mario is clearly rubbing it in that he's still been working out, even though most of us have not. But, Allison, I'm going to start with you. It's it, hot over here. It's the weather. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard enough, Allison, to pull this off under normal circumstances. How are you going to do it uh, in the age of COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 has made an unprecedented sort of uh, sense of urgency for the work that we do. Our mission with Red Nose Day is to end child poverty by keeping kids safe, healthy, and educated. And really what that means is is food, uh, shelter, and medicine. And really with our work today, we've it's just become more and more urgent um, that we, we serve the needs of these people and these kids um, that, that need our help. So we partner with Walgreens, NBC, and Mars. And through the donations that we, we make with their, their scale, frankly, and through our own digital platforms, we take those donations and then grant it to over 25 nonprofit organizations, such as Feeding America, Boys and Girls Club of America, and then Covenant House and many more. Um, you know, we raised over $200 million over the last five years and positively impacted over 25 million children in the U.S. and abroad. We're so excited about it. And that's a big number, $200 million. We've got some great entertainment yeah. Mario, on Thursday night, uh, what are you looking forward to and when did you become a part of it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm thrilled to be officially part of the NBC family for, for about a year now. And I've, I've been involved for the last few, but uh, as a technical NBC uh, uh, employee, it's, you know, I, I'm happy to, to, to have a bigger role. And we've been doing a lot on, on my, all my Access shows, Access Hollywood, All Access Daily, um, uh, Access Daily, and, and really supporting it. And like for the reasons just mentioned, um, it, it's just fantastic, all these people that we reach and get to help, especially with the Boys and Girls Club, which is dear to me since I was a former Boys Club member and grew up in one of the clubs and know how important it is, especially when you got parents that work and, and they do so much wonderful work, and especially during this time right now where a lot of those kids get their meals there, they're, they're able to, to uh, be kept off the streets and, and not uh, get into trouble and um, be around some good people and, and uh, mentors and what have you. So any chance I get an opportunity to, to support such a, a great cause, it's great. And the, you know, the amount of money, it's, it's, it's incredible they get to raise and the wonderful people that are coming together with performances from like John Legend, Blake Shelton, Gwen Stefani, um, you know, and, and, and uh, 
fun uh, uh, guests like Jack Black, Ben Stiller, they're all joining. It's it's going to be uh, quite the event, and you know we hope to continue to take it to the next level this year. Yeah, we're we're looking forward to it. We all are in the NBC family. Allison, obviously, you can't buy a physical red nose this year, but tell us how we can add to that that number of two hundred million dollars and keep that Good money coming in. Yeah, so the digital uh, the digital nose is here this year, and this is the first time we've done this with our partner at Walgreens. So, in a matter of about four weeks, when we realized it wasn't feasible to sell a digital nose, I mean a regular nose in store, we came together, figured out a way to create a really cool digital nose. So, you go to noseon.com, you donate any denomination, the higher the better, um, and then with that, you unlock a digital nose on Instagram, Facebook, or Snapchat. Take a selfie of yourself press it out into your social platforms and really helps us galvanize and raise awareness to the public. And we need as much help as possible this year, just getting the word out and frankly, driving donations. It's, it's a really cool, as you can see, um, little, little tool this year. And yeah. we're really excited about it with our partnership. It's a very, very easy tool too. Cause I'm like Fred Flintstone and I even figured it out. <laughs> so it's, it, it's cool for the gram yeah. and the little digital nose and erase. So it, it is, Super uh, easy. it is, it looks good. You have yeah. some you have some great company, Mario. As you said, uh, there are going to be some really exciting events and you were going down the list of some of the the, the fellow uh, entertainers uh, who are going to be there. Can you tell me where to, you go to nose on noses on dot com or Walgreens or Walgreens dot com forward slash red nose day. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Either those um, URLs and you unlock the nose, you push it on on social, and then you tune in on NBC on the 21st at 8 p.m. Celebrity Escape Room, as Mario was saying, just an incredible lineup there with Jack Black and and the entire crew. Um, and then we're going to have two hours of an incredible show. And it's amazing the amount of NBC celebrities that came out to support us this year and more celebrity. It's just going to be a little bit of fun and levity to raise money for kids and particularly the ones who need us the most right now. Exactly. Well, it means a lot to us to be a part of it. Thank you both. We wish you well. We'll be Thank watching. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. right on. Thank we'll, you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Mario Lopez, of course, Allison Moore joining us tonight. Well, each night we're highlighting restaurants operating during this crisis. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. Send me a picture as well. And tonight we're highlighting good, clean food in Kailua, Hawaii, Woodstock Pizza, San Diego, California, Bake a Bagel in Masspeth, New York, the R Bar and Grill in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Slab Town Pizza in Cashiers, North Carolina. We're grateful for all you're doing, and we're pulling for all of you. On day 142 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Housing starts in April fall 30% to the lowest level in some five years. Stat News reporting some experts say Moderna didn't give enough critical data to access to assess its vaccine trial results. Stocks are selling off on that report, the Dow falling nearly 400 points. Futures right now, we showed you throughout the evening, modestly positive, and that's where we stand right now across the board. You can go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information all night long on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you again at 7 p.m. for markets in turmoil. Of course, I'll see you at noon on the halftime report as well. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Have a good night and stay well. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.